Um, well, do you have a question anyway? Yeah. Um, I just, well, I don't know if it's going to be appropriate, but maybe you guys can help me out. Um, I just, <clears throat> it's Are you my, okay? You need a glass of water or something? <laughs> I was calling because I was wondering if you guys had any water. What? Well, <laughs> I don't. I'm, I'm not sure. Thirsty. Where are you? Me? <laughs> yeah. Des Moines. No, I mean like. <laughs> I mean like, are you at home? Yes, I'm at home in Des Moines. Did you possibly get yourself at home? Hey there, podcast listeners. It's me, Justin. I am writing solo at the moment. It's just me here. Uh, you may have noticed on your little playback bar, wherever you're listening to this podcast, that this is a pretty short episode. Now, my hope had been that uh, what I'm about to play for you would be like maybe half of an episode, and then the other half would be some other stuff. Um so basically what, what I'm about to play for you, I conducted a, a one-on-one interview with somebody and uh, everybody else that works on the show, all the other co-hosts, they're all busy right now and I've spent the past couple weeks too busy with other stuff. So basically our schedules just aren't lining up right now. You're used to it. This is how we conduct this show. We're all uh, just a, a total mess. <laughs> um, so to, to get you into this... the there's some context in the interview it sort of speaks for itself but uh to to let you know kind of what you're about to hear so the primaries were last week for the uh the midterms coming up this year so the main parties were nominating their candidates to compete in the fall uh we although this has been like the main electoral focus in the state uh on this show we have not really been talking about it very much we haven't been particularly engaged in the primaries aside from interviewing our friend jalen cavill uh, and his race for iowa house district 36 was pretty much the only race that any of us were invested in at all we didn't really care about anything else other than him and uh he lost unfortunately uh, so the interview that I recorded yesterday was with the campaign manager for one of Jalen's opponents, which is interesting. So, uh, I mean, it's my personal belief that the the quote unquote left would have benefited more in that race if everybody had rallied their support behind Jalen rather than having another, you know, progressive candidate enter what was already a pretty crowded field. But, I mean, the, this this guy was a campaign manager. He was more involved in the race than I was over here on the other side of the state. So he has some interesting things to say, interesting insight into the experience. So I do think it is a worthwhile interview, even if I, I may disagree with uh, his actions running that campaign. Uh, this is, of course, different from uh, the typical interview on this show, usually where you're talking to people that we know personally or that we like fully 100% endorse. Obviously, in this case, we endorsed our friend Jalen, uh, who was an opponent of the candidate that you're uh, going to hear from their campaign manager. But, you know, at the very least, this can be considered an effort to stir up some drama within the Iowa Democratic Party. And that's always good, right? All right. Well, I'll let you guys draw your own conclusions and uh, 
let the interview speak for itself. So here it is. All right, this is Rock Hard Caucus with uh, Justin Comer. Uh, I'm alone right now. Well, almost. None of the co-hosts are here, but I'm uh, I'm interviewing somebody briefly. To contextualize this a little bit, I tweeted from the podcast account the other night, the night of the 2022 primaries, and I said, if you lost your primary tonight, we'll give you $20 to come on our podcast and talk shit. And I have here somebody who... Uh, who bit on that uh, hook and uh, <laughs> is here to talk some shit. I've got uh, Chris Dean, who was the campaign manager for Gabriel De La Cerda. Am I saying his name right? Yeah. Yeah, you got All it. All right. Great. Good. Good. He, he would probably say something about how it doesn't have nearly as much of a Hispanic inflection, but I'm always just like, dude, you're overdoing it. It's fine. I'm saying it whitely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You, you're, you, it's fine. <laughs> And uh, yeah, Gabriel was one of the six candidates in the Democratic primary in House District 36. And uh, yes. a couple episodes ago, we interviewed Jalen Cavill, who was our pick for that race. Yep. Uh, but we've got Chris here, who managed Gabriel's campaign. So how's it going, Chris? Welcome to the show. It's going. It's been it's been a long week. Um, obviously, Tuesday was disappointing all around the board, you know, in that race. And, you know, I've been working really hard on this campaign. And one of the the worst parts about doing campaign work is after Election Day, you kind of turn into a pumpkin. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I've, you know, just trying to kind of figure out what's next for me. And uh, um, I'm not a, a Des Moines native. I'm from Cedar Rapids, but I've been living mm -hmm. here for the past couple months while we uh, went on our chaotic crusade. So um, I'm just trying to kind of figure out what's next and what I'm going to be doing, if I'm still going to be doing campaign stuff or if I'm just going to go back to working a normal crappy tech job like I was before. So, <laughs> yeah. So you moved out there to work on the campaign. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was kind of, a um, you know, but before this, I was kind of just your regular loser, divorced, uh, unemployed guy. And mm -hmm. but I but I had done campaign work before and uh, I've known Gabe since I was 17 uh, around New Year's, he called me. He's like, how about you come to Des Moines, have some drinks and uh, discuss something because I've got an idea. He was like, I'm going to run for this. I want you to come do it with me. And I know you don't have a good excuse not to. <laughs> and since I didn't, I was like, ah, yeah, you know, we looked at the race. Uh, I looked at the, the field of candidates and saw that there was a path uh, or a possible path. And so decided to jump in and do it, kind of did things remotely for a while. And then around the end of March, I'm like, yeah, it's time for me to just move. So mm -hmm. I've, I've been basically crashing on Gabe's couch for the past couple months and just kind of, um, you know, we were hitting the ground as hard as we could and, you know, doing the best we could. And we obviously didn't get there. Uh, in fact, I'd say we underperformed significantly from what I was hoping. You know, we ended up fourth in that race. Yeah. But that the the outcome was certainly not what I expected. We can kind of get into that as we go through there. I, I was definitely not expecting anybody to win that race outright. Yeah. So if you don't mind, I've got the results here. Um, sure. As of last night, it still says that uh, it's ninety eight point nine nine percent counted. <laughs> I assume so that's some change. of the absentees. <laughs> yeah. I think that's still some of the absentees coming in. Yeah. Uh, so as of last time I looked at this, uh, Austin Baith. Am I saying yeah. his name right? Okay. Yeah. Well, he he really took it uh, with 2,527 votes, and that's about 49%. Yeah. And then uh, our friend Jalen was second, significantly yep. behind with 1,078 votes, 21%. Yeah. 
And then, as you said, uh, your candidate, Gabe, was number four out of six with 303 votes, which is about 6%. Yeah, pretty abysmal and definitely not what I was expecting um, from uh, the campaign that we ran. Uh, You know, when I when I looked at the race at the very outset of what we were looking at, I was kind of thinking, you know, six way primary contested field. The only real I was convinced that the only path to getting this nomination was through convention. Um, mm-hmm. Just looking at the race there, um, for those who don't know, and by the way, I hate this. It shouldn't be like <laughs> this, but this is this is how it is in Iowa. Is if there if in a primary, if no candidate gets thirty five percent plus one of the total vote of the vote total in the primary, it goes to convention, and uh, the the convention would be, I believe, a week from today, and so my thinking was okay um we're going up against some big money here but if we can get a top two or three finish and whip delegates uh form a coalition try to get uh support from some of the other candidates that had dropped from the race after a after a poor showing i thought we had a convention path but then austin just blew everybody out of the water Mm -hmm. and so the night was done very early I, you know, licked my wounds and had my drinks and now I'm just kind of, you know, looking at it in retrospect and kind of trying to figure out some of the things we did wrong. I think there's a lot we did right. I think that there was a lot that made Gabe a good candidate, um, but there's definitely a lot of things that I would do differently at running the campaign. And and it helps that one of the things that I, and we, we use this in our ads and some of our literature is that I, I crunched the numbers on Austin Baith and uh, he was literally the most well-funded primary candidate in any Democrat House primary in the state, yeah, uh, I went. I went and looked at the fundraising totals, and from the January first to May fourteenth uh, fundraising uh, reporting period, he raised something like I believe it was fifty eight thousand dollars, and that's the most for any House race. The in fact, the only primary race that outdid that would have been um, uh, there was a Senate race that was actually decided by less than a hundred votes, uh, and Donahue and her opponent. Oh yeah. Austin Frerich. Yeah, Austin Frerich raised 80 grand. God damn. And, and he lost. Yeah, and, yeah, and he <laughs> lost. And what's fascinating to me is it's like, man, Democrats really love to just light a ton of money on fire for safe mm-hmm. districts. Like, it, it's insane because, like, I mean, this, this is a safe seat. There's no Republican running in the fall. Whoever wins, wins. And it's like, why are they spending so much money, absurd amounts of money. And I, I looked through who his donors were. You had Fred Hubble, you had Rob Sand, mm-hmm. you had a lot of um, uh, you know, big wigs in the party with a lot of financial backing going all in on this race. And you know, I was trying to figure out like what it is about this. And, and it, I come back to uh, early on in the race when we had a forum that was um, with the Polk County Democrats, Joe Oldson, who had the seat previously, mm-hmm. was in, in the room there. And one of the things she said is that, you know, whoever holds the seat in this district will be expected to fundraise for candidates in more difficult races throughout the state. Mm -hmm. So the IDP views district 36 as their cash cow. Okay. You've got the Northwest, you know, the Northwest side of the city, like the, the North of Grand, Ingersoll, Woodland Heights area, very, very rich neighborhoods there. A lot, just a, a lot of money. And that money is expected to be funneled through that candidate's coffers to other races, which philosophically busts my hump because you'd think that you would want to be using a safe seat to have somebody that can actually like get out in front in some of these issues and not just having it be about the boundaries. Yeah, right, right. Because if, if again, and this is a thing that Gabe said over and over again, is that 
Democrats think that they can just, and especially here in the state, you know, they wish that they could be the party of money like Republicans. But if they're trying to think that they can out, they're, they're going to get out fundraised by Republicans every time. Like that's mm-hmm. just never, that's just never, that's just reality. So we need to change the paradigm. We need to make, stop making it about money and the reason for holding these seats. And we need to start making it about actually getting it in front of, of issues. And specifically with us, we wanted to be able to get out in front with things like labor, workers' rights, um, collective bargaining, things that would actually bring people back into the fold for the party. That was mm-hmm. a lot of his pitch, you know, and his pitch that he was making to people on the doors, the pitch that he would be making to people when we would be at these forums. And it's, uh, it's sad to see that money won. I mean, best candidates money can buy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and that's how it shakes down. And yeah. it's, it's sad to see, but uh, it didn't help that we, the institutional support we got was very limited. Um, and I can kind of go into that a little bit uh, in regards to labor. Yeah. Well, okay. So when, when Gabe announced that he was running, there were already yeah. candidates running in this race, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, know, I, I believe was he, he, the was, the okay. he was the last to announce. He was the last to announce. So what uh, was the path that you were envisioning for uh, a successful race here? Like what, what distinguished Gabe from the rest of the candidates that were already running? You can say Jalen if you want. <laughs> sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, I talked yeah. to Jalen well, about this. Yeah, yeah. And, and so context, um, and I won't go into too many of the nitty gritty details, but before Gabe announced, uh, him and Jalen did have a sit down mm-hmm. and talked about this. And Jalen, you know, rightly so, did ask Gabe not to run. Yeah. And uh, there were some things that were discussed in there that I, I don't want to go into because it's it's not really useful now anyway. But, you know, we wanted to meet. We sat down. Brian was in the room and uh, we sat down and just made sure, OK, well, if we're going to do this, first off, no going after each other. Um, we're going to be the two progressive candidates in the race. Let's make sure that we're not eating each other alive as the left tends to do. Um, and I thought that we both did a pretty good job of that. You know, we, whenever we were running it, any ads or any sort of um, uh, messaging that was aimed at an, specifically any other candidate in the race, generally we were going after Austin mm-hmm. um, because it was pretty clear that he was the, he was the front runner. And then uh, my thinking, and this was sort of when, when him and I met around new year's, my thinking was I was looking at the race holistically and my thinking was, okay, there's a pretty good chance this goes to convention. And I have a great amount of respect for Jalen. I I'm, was very pleased to see that he was the second place instead of Shannon, mm-hmm. because that, that, is, that was not what I expected. I expected Shannon to overperform. She underperformed significantly. But my thinking was Jalen has the chance to perform well, but he has no convention path. There's a lack of, in order to win at a convention, in order to win a delegate count, you have to have a certain amount of institutional buy-in with the IDP. Mm-hmm. And as much as I have significant, significant problems with the IDP, one advantage that I thought Gabe had in that situation is that he was on the state central committee and he mm-hmm. knows these people. So I thought we could aim ourselves as being the progressive candidate in the race that would have a chance to actually win through convention. Mm-hmm. That's obviously not how things shook out, but that, that was sort of my thinking when I was looking at it is like, okay, well, I'm tired of moral victories. I want to fucking win. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, I didn't see him doing that. I saw Gabe having a path to do that. And so that's when I made my decision. It's like, okay, let's do this. Okay. And uh, you know, I think that ultimately in the end, Jalen out hustled us. Uh, he had a lot more support through groups like CCI. Uh, he yeah. had a much larger volunteer base than we had. 
Um, we were trying to lean a little bit harder on labor. Um, obviously, we got the AFL-CIO endorsement. Right, yes. Gabe himself was a former steel worker uh, at Bridgestone Firestone. And um, we were hoping to get some more backing and volunteer base through that. Uh, that is not what happened. That did not pan out. I think we only got maybe we got like one Saturday with like four canvassers from uh, labor to labor canvassers. Mm-hmm. And they knocked on maybe like eight doors each. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And then and then we only got um, because of the way that the the rules work for PACs, you know, unions are technically PACs, so mm-hmm. they couldn't make any donations to campaigns until 30 days after the legislature was out of session. Well, hmm. as you may know, the legislature went through this like extended period of session to deal with right, the, yeah. the, the education bill. So that meant that we didn't get our first check from the AFL-CIO candidate fund until like two weeks prior to the election. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, I was able to use that money to turn it around into like ad spend. I had some Facebook ads running. Mm-hmm. But that didn't really amount to much. And then I think it speaks a little bit to the inability and the ineffectiveness of organized labor to really actually like move the needle on some of these races. I think that if we could have had our guys out there knocking doors and more specifically, and so this is something that's always bugged me because I've, I've, I've dealt with working with labor on other campaigns before. And one of the things that always bugged me is they only knock on union doors. Oh, okay. They, they won't, the, the, it's a labor to labor thing. They have their own lists and they only go knock doors of other union members. They won't go and like use our list. So I can't hand them a canvas packet or huh. a van list. So that's probably why they why they only knocked eight doors each is because uh, right. there's not right. that many union members here. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> right. Oh, I, I know. I, the, and the vote total shook out that way. I was hoping to get what we could. And when we were in some of those neighborhoods on the south side, one of the things that I, I did was make sure to like broaden our targeting a little bit from what you would traditionally use for a, an off-year primary. And there were a couple of days where I would be like, I want you to try knocking on some Trump voters. I want you to, mm-hmm. to actually try to let, let's try to get some of these labor guys that have have sort of disengaged entirely mm-hmm. or flipped sides because they're, well, frankly, pissed off at Democrats. Yeah. And let's see if we can if we can get some buy in for them. And some of those conversations were really good. Mm-hmm. Whether or not that shook out at the ballot box, I don't know uh, and probably never will know. Um, right. We were spending a lot of time organizing the South Side, hoping we could use that to overperform. And it just didn't pan out. But, you know, it's like. I was constantly trying to get on the phone and on the email with these labor guys to be like, okay, well, now that we've got the endorsement, what happens next? Like, yeah, we can put a badge on our literature. Yeah, we can run that in our ad. But above and beyond that, we didn't really get a whole hell of a lot. Yeah. And it's like, well, dudes, I mean, I'm I'm a labor leftist, right? Like, I think that that it's it's the silver bullet to me. Everything comes down to being able to have more workers organize mm-hmm. and more workplaces unionize. And building that class solidarity can go such a long way to be able to actually like advance the cause of progressive policies when people understand that they're in this together and who the real enemies are uh, and that they oftentimes cross party. And it's just, but it's just like, guys, if you want to win an election, you need to get the goods if you actually want to be influential in electoral politics. And that's one of the problems of when labor is weak and they're trying so hard just to keep their head above water on contracts, yeah. they can't influence elections like they used to. They can't, you know, they, they can't get out there and knock doors. They can't, you know, give the money and they can't organize. And, and more importantly, in many cases, they won't work with campaign organizations to actually coordinate their efforts. I would have loved to have been able to take a list of all the union guys, had him go knock those doors 
And then when we did get out the vote, be able to make sure that we could go activate those voters. I was never able to get that because right. they don't give you a list of their people either. Yeah, right, right. I don't have I don't have any capability to organize any of that. And so it's 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 frustrating when we when we lost the Progressive Caucus uh, nomination or the, the endorsement to Jalen pretty early on. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of hoping that they would have in- endorsed a couple people in that race instead of just Jalen, because I thought, you know, um, that we also stood out as the other progressive in the race. And there's stuff there I won't go into. But, you know, when that happened, I was kind of thinking, I'm like, OK, well, we're going to attack hard labor because, you know, the reality is like, I think that for all the for all the good things that Jalen is as a candidate, I did kind of think that he was sort of leaving them out and and leaving out organized labor as part of his coalition. And hmm. so that's that's like when I was going and talking to these these guys with uh, UAW, for example, um, and the steelworkers about the race. He's like, yeah, you know, we've we've had some conversations with uh, Shannon. We've had, you know, just a quick phone call with J- with uh, with uh, Austin. You know, obviously we were having regular conversations over and over to try to to win that endorsement and uh, radio silence from Jalen. He never hmm. even returned their calls. So I, I thought that that was unusual. and where I thought that we could sort of build on, you know, Gabe's strength as, you know, a former steelworker, somebody who has worked on a factory floor and, you know, ultimately it didn't pan out in the vote total. But, you know, I, I think that that's one of the things that, and you can look that at that at movements more broadly, that there, there needs to be more, you know, working together of like the professional activist left and the labor left. And they're just not, they're not coordinating the way they need to, you know? Yeah, I think a big sticking point between like where organized labor and where the more activist movement is right now is cops basically like the unions organize i mean cops have their own unions and yes they do and oftentimes AFSCME will be the ones that are that are negotiating with them and obviously that's a big part of who jalen is is he's right he's been out in the streets demonstrating against the police for years so i i think that's probably some of his uh his issue with you know talking to organized labor is that they don't really want to engage with that as far as i can tell yeah and that's a tough nut to crack man because it's it's like you know at one point during one point if you agree that all workforces should have the capability to organize and unionize then you have to be like well does that include cops because they're the ones who in a strike situation are yeah. going to cross a picket line right right yeah they they aren't like, really with the the workers in a situation their, like that their job is literally to to defend you know private property yeah. and to defend capital yeah. but at the same time on an individual basis is it advantageous to try to build class solidarity among these people so that you know when the rubber hits the road they can demonstrate some sort of class solidarity with a worker who's striking. Like it's a it's a tough conversation to have. The other well, thing I, too, I mean, is I like, would say that the history of of the labor movement, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, history would would indicate that they would never <laughs> take the side of the strikers. Right, right, and 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 I I'm inclined to agree with you. Yeah. Um. Uh. But at the same time, you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? Like it's like you don't. Yes, they do they do represent and um, the the police union, but it's like, if you're going after AFL, if you're trying to get the backing of AFL-CIO, you know, a police union of, is one of hundreds and mm. you can't just throw that out. So it's like, you know, how, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you square that circle? And, and it's tough. And, you know, I had a conversation when I was, when we were seeking the, the endorsements of uh, um, the different uh, unions there, I had a conversation with a guy that asked me and uh, 
one of the things that is is I, I got an interesting perspective of his own work with the uh, with the police union. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a case, and I'm not going to get into names or details, but they had a case where it was uh, somebody who was a corrections officer at a prison uh, here in the state, and was clearly just being an absolute fucking jerk, like mm-hmm. just just one. Of, yeah, I mean, that's tales old as time, right? Like like you and I know this. <laughs> And so it's like, okay, the the director of the of the jail wanted to fire their ass mm-hmm. uh, because they were clearly fucking up. Uh, you know, I hate to use the term bad apple, but you know, you get what I mean. <laughs> yeah. So the director of the police union is like, okay, well then you need to do this and this and this and this so you can do it. And they and they just didn't do any of that, and they fired the guy. Well, what happened? They got reinstated because they mm. because they filed for wrongful termination because they didn't do this and this and this and this like they're yeah. supposed to. And as a as a leader of a union, you can't be selective about like, okay, well, yeah, to just fire their ass or whatever. And then also at the same time, if it's in a different industry or a different type of workplace, you know, be willing to go to bat for them. You have to, unfortunately, the nature of the beast is you have to be able to do both. And so it's like the union handed the boss a, a freaking roadmap on how to fire this person and have them be gone. Yeah. And they just didn't do it, which, again, hmm. is indicative of ownership being absolute dog shit at this. And uh, <laughs> yeah. but it's like, you know, people get mad at uh, police unions for, uh, you know, defending people who are legitimately fucking awful. But yeah. it's like and, and it's the problem of if you're, you know, if you're a union member or a union leader that's representing many different unions, you can't just not do that for one and then do it for another. Otherwise, it throws out the entire basis of your ability to protect workers from wrongful termination broadly. So it's mm-hmm. it's again, it's a tough nut to crack. I don't have the answer. Yeah. But I mean, I, I do think it does speak towards that sort of schism. Yeah. And another perspective on that situation is like, you know, the fact that you have you are organizing cops in your larger like umbrella union, like kind of ends up tainting the whole union in general. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I think that that's part of what happens when labor is weak Mm -hmm. is that they have to take everything that they can get. And if that means that they're taking institutional support from the police union, which is legitimately fucking bad, then, uh, it kind of it does it releases that ethylene gas like that bad fruit that we speak about that makes other fruit mm-hmm. go bad <laughs> and <Right>. so <laughs> uh yeah I, and you know if it were up to me i i mean i'm all about you know defunding the police i'm all about you know i, th- I think the the i think the best way to defund the police is to just decriminalize marijuana luckily we got kim graham uh the uh mm-hmm. Polk yeah, County yeah. attorney candidate who managed her victory and uh that that's going to go a long way to that because that's i mean that is that has been their fundraising arm since nixon and so yeah. <laughs> like uh but being able to sort of kneecap the power of of the police would in turn kneecap the power and influence of police unions which would in turn you know kneecap their hold over organized labor in general yeah but then you know are they going to fight to defend that and that's that's where i have problems you know and and so it's it's you know as, as somebody who's a student of labor history i think that that was a big part of the poison pill of the afl cio um it yeah. was was bringing them on board in uh, i believe it was the 30s although i'm not 100 percent on that so don't quote me um i am not a historian yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm a fan of history as they say mm-hmm. but uh, um I think that was a big sort of poison pill, kind of like uh, the poison pill of the UAW getting in bed with the uh, 
military industrial complex was was one of the original. I mean, you can you can go back and point to some of these different points, but yeah. But as to the larger campaign, so we were taking the labor progressive tack. Jalen was taking the activist pr- progressive tack. He whooped us. Mm-hmm. We ate shit, <laughs> and uh, it, it's. I mean, it comes down to union membership, but it also comes down to the fact that Jalen got boots on the ground. We did. Mm-hmm. Um, I I had a very small group of volunteers. Most of the doors that we knocked were me and him, mm-hmm. and we had some people that were phone banking. We we didn't have the money. Our fundraising wasn't great. Jalen out fundraised us by quite a bit, not much, but a, a pretty significant amount. And uh, so we were only able to send out like two mailers. I ran some Facebook ads the last three weeks, which oh boy, you want to talk about a an absolute clusterfuck trying to run political ads on Facebook is the oh, most yeah. mind numbing, horrible process. Not, <laughs> not even just like all of the, the approval and crap you got to do, like just the UI, just being able to use the thing. I worked at GoDaddy as their technical writer for eight years, mm-hmm. which is like fundamentally a terrible system to use. Yeah. <laughs> and it was le- leaps and bounds better than using anything with Facebook. <laughs> so yeah. like, it, it's just, it was, it took me, I finally had to pay somebody to just walk me through it. I, wow. I, I called a friend of mine who's an elected official uh, who won her primary. Um, I'm, I'm friends with uh, Liz Bennett. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, ran, I ran her campaign back in uh, 2014 when she okay. ran for the state house originally. Yeah. So I finally call Liz. I'm like, Liz, how the hell do you do this? Because I am, <laughs> I'm just stuck. And so she's like, you're going to call Josh. You're going to pay him a hundred bucks and he's, he's going to get you online. I'm like, cool. Awesome. Let's do that. But, uh, you know, and, and so um, that, that's just the way it shook out. I uh, I really thought that this was going to be a convention. I did not expect Austin to overperform, mm-hmm. but overall, the reason he overperformed is that vote turnout was historically low, even oh, really? for an off-year primary. Hmm. Yeah, like uh, it was I, like I mean, around five thousand votes in that district. I expected eight. Really, based on my projection, yes, uh, based on my projections of previous primaries in the district uh, that were contested. Um, in off years, so like off mm-hmm. presidential years, yep. um, and that's going back. I looked at uh, 2006, I looked at 2014, mm-hmm. and I looked at um, 2010. Now, not all of those were contested, but they did give a broad idea of what the vote total shook out to, and they were generally somewhere between 7,000 and 8,500. So I was expecting about 8,000. But then again, if you look at the races around the state, they were down across the board, which is not great if you look yeah. at how they're actually going to do in the fall where they're going to just get cranked. <laughs> because yeah, they well, I think the, the Republican primaries had uh, better numbers this year, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had much higher numbers, even mm-hmm. though they did. They had far less amount of contested races throughout the right. state. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of nice that I'm going to be able to unplug from all of this freaking math for a while <laughs> and not be so like uh, numbers and data and whatever and, and yeah. get to just go be a loud, angry labor guy on Twitter again. <laughs> um, uh, that part's fun. Mm-hmm. And I will I promise I will be a thorn in Austin Bates sides and his fucking tweets for as long as I, I'm drawing breath. Uh, maybe that's a little bit petty, but I kind of don't care. <laughs> well, if he's if this district is like what you call it, their cash cow, he's going to be a prominent face in the party for the next yeah. while. Yeah. Yeah. So he's a target. And he has that seat. He has that seat as long as he wants it. That's yeah. the other thing, too. Like, I mean, or redistricting, because that was a lot of the, the reason why uh, it became an open seat was because with the redistricting, Joe Olson and, and Bruce Hunter, who's on the south side, would have had mm-hmm. to run against each other. Mm-hmm. So instead, they both decided to retire. And that's why this seat became an open contested primary. And that's also why um, the other race south of us, so Srinivas and Morrow, right, um, yes. uh, became an open one, which 
That oh, was a fun one man. to watch. That was fun to watch. <laughs> well, and, and here's the context. I've known Megan Srinivas since I was 16. Mm-hmm. She would regularly whoop my ass in high school debate, just absolutely mm-hmm. clean my clock. And uh, so it was just like I saw her running and it's like, oh, yeah, I remember her. Oh, she's going to be great. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, she ran a really good campaign. Dirty little secret, though. You know how I was saying Austin Baith was the candidate who had raised the most money for a house race in the yeah. state? You know who the second one was? Are you going to say Eddie Morrow? No. <laughs> Megan? Megan Shrinovas. Wow. Yeah. Eddie Morrow was actually dog shit at fundraising. Uh, hmm. He only raised well, like six Well, it is like grand. his third or fourth try for office, right? Right, right. <laughs> and, you know, he's he's 11 of 11. Uh, just <laughs> He needs to find a new hobby, man. Take up fly fishing, you know, craft brewing, yeah. Warhammer 40K, you know, all less expensive <laughs> hobbies. Than, than running for office. Uh, well, yeah, because he, gathering. he funds his own campaigns to a large extent, right? Yeah, he yeah, but he has money, and a lot of yeah. it was his own money. Something mm-hmm. interesting that I did find when I was digging through his financials, because I was just like having coffee and, and trying to kind of like get myself going for the day one morning. And uh, so I'm like, eh, I'm going to dig through these PDFs. So I go and I look in the January 1st to May 14th filing period for Morrow, and I'm like, in-kinds, $12,000 in in-kind donations. Hmm. That's weird. So I go and I look at it, and it's all Lamar advertising, hmm. the billboard guys. Yeah, right. I don't know how that went down, if he just had, if they owed him a favor or if there was some weird thing where he was like giving them money and then they would in-kind him the billboard. But my joke was that he's, Eddie Morrow is in, in bed with big rectangle. But <laughs> yeah. uh <laughs> So all of those billboards of his dumb, smug face that were all over the South Side, those were given to him. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder what the the deal is with that. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Um, there was something I wanted to ask you about. So the, the Progressive Caucus endorsement. Um, yeah. You mentioned that you would hope that they might endorse more than one candidate. Uh, yeah. It seems like that would be kind of uh, counterproductive since only one of them can win. I, I think of it kind of like I've seen... in. I just think historically, like I've seen endorsements being done by some organizations, whether it's a caucus or a media organization that mm-hmm. where there's a wide field, mm-hmm. whether it's like, okay, well, we're, we're going to, we think it should be this person or this person. Famously, that's what the New York Times did during the presidential election in 2020. With Warren and Klobuchar. Yeah. I yeah, remember that. Which was, which was, of course, I mean, whatever they both, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, I, I have my feelings about Elizabeth Warren and I'm, I will keep them to myself, but, uh, <laughs> But, you know, like, so sometimes you would see that. So I was kind of hoping that that might happen, but I certainly wasn't like, I didn't have any, any, sort. I, I didn't have any delusions that that would be how it would shake out. Mm-hmm. I always assumed Jalen was going to get it. I'm like, we got to, okay. we got to make our pitch. We got to make our case. But I had always assumed Jalen was going to get it. Mm-hmm. Like I said, he ran a great campaign. He, by no means should he be done doing electoral politics. I think that he's going to go back to what he was doing and continue to do that. But I, I, I think that, I mean, the dude's only what, 24? Uh, like, I think that's right. Yeah. He told yeah, us when so we like, interviewed him, but yeah, he's young. <laughs> yeah. He's young. I'm, I'm 36. All right. So, I mean, he's, he's, he's a baby to me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, he has the capability to really be a force to be reckoned with if he keeps going and trying this. I think he's going to go back to the more what he was doing in the community as he should because it's mm-hmm. cool and good and yeah. does good things and gets the goods. But I would love to see in, you know, however long as I'm because I'll be watching Des Moines politics from afar forever now. I am poison pilled and tied mm-hmm. to this this and <laughs> it was a funny aside when I was talking to Liz about how hey, I might go run this race. She was like a wise friend of mine told me a long time ago, never, ever get involved in Polk County politics. And boy, I see <laughs> yeah. why now. But anyway, I do think that he has a, the capability to be a force to be reckoned with electorally. 
And I could see him trying again for some of these other races, city council, board of supervisors, things like that. And he has the capability to keep building on that movement and be keep building on that coalition. So I was really proud of what he did. You know, there's no no bad blood between our campaigns. Um, uh, at least I hope there's not on from him. I think that he was maybe a little worried that we were going to siphon off his vote, but I think that the vote total was pretty demonstrative that we didn't. Mm-hmm. And if all of our votes had been Jalen vote votes, it wouldn't have put him close to over the top anyway. Yeah. Like it's so. I mean, I I don't. I don't know. I, I, I know that some there was some Twitter chatter about that, about Gabe at one point. I, I just never bought it because I think that, again, we were going after the union vote and he never had that anyway. They would have gone for, you know, the, the labor voters would have gone for a Henson or a Baith most likely anyway. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know, man. And and I, I try not to do too much Monday morning quarterbacking uh, about this now that it's all done and shaken out. So it's just... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was sad to see us uh, underperform as much as we did. I was proud of my guy for what he did from a personal level. Like I said, I've known Gabe for a long time. Yeah, running for office is fucking hard. It's it's the worst job interview on the planet, <laughs> and uh, and for a job that pays shit, by the way. Yeah. But you know, I, I was really proud of what he did and how hard he worked. Whether or not he'll try again, I asked him this. He's like, "Well, I'm going to win the lottery first because that's like the only way that I'd be able to actually do it and win." And it's like, oh, yeah, that's I mean, he's like, yeah, I don't have doctor or lawyer money. And that's what it kind of came down to for him Mm -hmm. is he just it's about money. And boy, I hate that. (laughs) Yeah, It, It shouldn't be like that, but it's the world we live in. The world uh, that I want to tear down. In uh, in his statement the night of the primary, he did refer to this as tilting at one last windmill, which seems to indicate to me that he's no longer uh, interested in electoral politics. Um, I I could see I, I could see that. Take what he said on election night with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. I think that he's pretty bitter about yeah. losing as one does when they lose. Um, mm-hmm. He's a very competitive person, and I think that he was prepared to lose. I don't think he was prepared to lose that badly. And sure. so I think that that may have been, I think that he was pretty upset about that. He's, he's calmed down a little bit in the past couple of days. And, you know, we went out and just kind of played some cards for a little while last night to kind of just air our grievances and whatnot. And he's, you know, we'll see what happens with him. I don't know. I mean, he's a social worker. And right now I think he's focused on going back to doing the best kind of work that he can for children, the families of Iowa uh, for that organization. And he's got a five-year-old kid he's, that he did not spend much time with during the campaign. I think he's mm-hmm. trying to focus on, you know, being able to get back to working with raising his son and, and, and work with his priorities there. I am always of the rule, never say never, but I definitely think it'll be a while. Yeah. Um, and the tilting at windmills thing is just kind of the, I mean, you even, if you saw our logo, it was Don Quixote. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was the, the whole idea was, this was kind of just this weird crusade to try to bring worker, bring the democratic party back to being the party of workers. That mm-hmm. was the message that we were saying in our, in our, in our, in our stump and on the doors. And it did resonate. And that was the other thing too, is like when Gabe got in front of somebody on the doors, he got them every time. Like even people that had Baith or Henson signs in their yards, he still got them because mm-hmm. um, he has. It's a compelling message, especially to people who are like capital D Democrats, and especially to people who were older who remember when they were the party of FDR, and that is sort of what he was trying to pitch himself as. And so he was he was a great candidate. Our campaign floundered in a lot of ways, but I think that he he really was a good candidate that was just beat in a race that had a ton of money and 
we just didn't have a lot of, of a volunteer base or a financial base to compete. Yeah. And that's just the way it shook out. Yeah. One more thing in, in the, uh, what he wrote the night of the primary that, uh, sure. I, I found interesting. I've never, I don't think I've ever seen this before, but, uh, and I don't know how I guess sincere this is, but uh, Gabe apologized to the yeah, people who donated yeah, yeah. to his he campaign. Did. He did. He did. <laughs> I, I I told him that was kind of a bad move, but I mean, what's what's done is done. I I uh, I wish I had been there with him to help him sort of hone that statement because I, I didn't like that, and I I think that it. Because here's the thing: is is besides you know some of the donations that we were able to get on the campaign, a lot of the donors were just literally like friends and family, right? You know, like when 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 I had him doing campaign calls, we had a lot of you know your normal fundraiser calls that you would do, but he would also be up late at night on Facebook Messenger just talking to people and like, hey, bud, how you doing? You know what's mm-hmm. going on? Just want to let you know I'm doing this toss us 20 bucks, toss us 30 bucks. And I think that he felt like he let them down by performing as badly as he did. And so I think that he felt a little bit of guilt. I think it also speaks a little bit towards his resentment of the power of money in politics. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, he thought that he let them down and that, I don't know, it's it, it, it's tough to say. You're right. I've never quite seen a statement like that from somebody running for office um, apologizing to their donors. Um, <laughs> it, it's definitely unique. And I, I think that it was sincere. Like I said, if I had been in the room with him at, at the time, I would have probably told him not to say that. But <laughs> then again, I also try to trust his instincts a little bit more than mine because I'm a weirdo with politics brain and I'm not the one running for office. So yeah, I, th- right. I, I just think that I think that that was really more kind of directed at his friends and family and just like, sorry for letting you down. Mm-hmm. And the response that we got from most of it was like, dude, what the hell are you talking about? Like, like. <laughs> No, yeah, we gave you money to go do a thing. You, we always knew it was a long shot, and we always knew that there was, you know, the most likely result was going to be that he lost. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't give the money to to it. Like that's that's because you don't win. Um, so so I didn't agree with that statement, but that's the statement he made, and yeah. uh, um, I think it, I think it was coming from a place of of deep personal uh, regret on things that we could have done better in the campaign. But it's not something that I, uh, like I said, it's not something I would have said, but he said it. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and the response we got back was mostly positive about it. And, and I'm not too, uh, <laughs> not too shaken up about it, although it did make me chuckle a little bit. And I, I pull it up on my phone when I was, I was, him and I had been in so close quarters for so long that after that shook out, we're like, okay, we need to kind of like give each other some space tonight. So I went and hung out with a friend. I pull up my phone and see that I'm like, ah, crap. <laughs> shouldn't have it left w- him alone <laughs> i guess not i guess not but um it's 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 all right you know and and i mean ultimately it's like what is it it's, it's not like it's gonna hurt him in the future you know mm-hmm. uh and you know if and if he decides he does want to do it again i think that he's he's has a base of support and he has a support group that'll that'll help him um and so you know we'll we'll see how that goes for me um i'm kind of trying to figure out if i'm going to keep doing electoral stuff i did nothing official on this yet because i am kind of in a weird spot i'm like getting a divorce finalized and all this other crap but mm-hmm. i did send an application to the fetterman campaign over in mm-hmm. pennsylvania okay. yeah because uh i like him and i have an affinity for very large labor boys so uh <laughs> um so i don't know we'll see how that shakes out um I, there's a nonprofit that i might go work at and i like that because it's a tech job that's actually unionized which is like hmm. a unicorn yeah. uh these days i mean like i said i've worked at godaddy and elastic and a bunch of tech companies and i i, I hate 
the grind set that's there and I hate that they're not union. So as far as what's next for me, you know, I, I, I'm hoping I can get something that'll be like that. But for right now, I'm just kind of flying by the seat of my pants and figuring yeah. out what happens next and then just being angry on the internet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we all relate. <laughs> right on, right on. Uh, you told me that uh, you plan to be, well, I don't think you use this word, but like a Twitter bully to Austin Baith. So uh, maybe we, we should end on that. What's What do you plan on yelling at him about? Well, Okay. So the day before the fucking primary, they did a uh, they did a forum for the West Side Dems. And one of the questions that came up was in regards to student loan forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And he was the only candidate in that race that was vehemently against student loan forgiveness. Oh, and really? it's like, bruh, like read the he doesn't room. need it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Also, it, fucking doctors, man, like that, that. That's the thing is like that's something you see commonly with oh, yeah. doctors and attorneys is because they have to go into so much debt to get their JD or to get their MD that they feel like the world owes them. Hmm. And and they feel like it's like, oh, I had cancer. I beat cancer. Now there's a cure for cancer and I'm mad about it. Like, <laughs> it, it, like what the fuck, dude? I, and then there was there was another thing I remember. It was a it was a uh, Woodland Heights Neighborhood Association. Jalen was at that one, actually. Mm-hmm. And they had a candidate forum there where everybody kind of got a chance to speak and answer questions. And Austin was there and got this absolute softball of a question in regards to to medicare and healthcare in general mm-hmm. and, and she's like so you know what do, what do we do about being able to keep healthcare costs low and and being able to ensure everybody has health care and his answer was campaign finance reform which huh. is pretty <laughs> fucking ironic if you think about it <laughs> well, coming yeah. from him <laughs> like like that's i mean a you're a doctor man it's this should be an absolute just like softball of a question kick that one out of the park. You're in a safe blue district. Should be advocating Medicare for all, rolling back the privatization of Medicaid in the state, yeah. all this other stuff. And you talk about campaign finance reform when you're the most well-funded candidate <laughs> in the goddamn state. Come on. Yeah. Like that, that, that's lazy. And what it was shows his connection that, between the two. I don't know. Oh, like okay. it, it, that, that's just what <laughs> came out of his damn mouth. It was more like dodging the, the medical. Yeah, it was, it, yeah. it was, it was kind of a dodge. And it's like, again, I don't think that he's somebody that would be an actually competitive in a race where he was not a the most clearly most well-funded candidate in the race, mm-hmm. but in a competitive district, could you see that guy winning a general election? Because I don't think no, <laughs> like absolutely not. Like I, I mean, I mean, granted, I, I don't know if I could say it about my guy either, but like maybe you know, like yeah. I, he's he's got big Ken the Page energy. He's like freaking Ken the Page with an MD who wears his scrubs when he's knocking doors and, <laughs> and for a photo op, even yeah. though he's got an army of freaking paid canvassers out there sticking yard signs in everybody's damn yard all throughout the northwest side of the city. <laughs> you know, and, and you have the absolute fucking gall to talk about campaign finance reform and, and for the answer to problems in medicine, the yeah. field you work in. <laughs> So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'll be, I'll be, uh, I'll be following him, and 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 you might be seeing me getting a little pissed off, uh, at, as I see some of his soon to be, I'm sure, absolute garbage takes over the next <laughs> however many years. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I asked you just to talk with, with me for about half an hour, and we've blown way over that. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, we went long. So, uh, yeah, thank you, Chris, for providing some of your uh, insider perspective on a a campaign that we were not involved in. Uh, sure, sure. <laughs> Yeah, that yeah. was yeah. Thanks for telling me about some of the uh, the secrets behind the District Thirty Six campaign. 
Yeah, yeah. It was uh it was it's Pol- Polk County politics are cutthroat and mm-hmm. I don't know if I'd ever do it again. But um yeah. then again, I, I I do manage campaigns, which means I am an insane person. Mm-hmm. Uh and this is only for insane people. And uh and so uh, never say never. We'll see. And thanks for having <laughs> yeah. me on, dude. I appreciate it. This was this was good. It was a uh, nice to kind of give some of my insight, but also it was pretty cathartic for me personally. <laughs> yeah. This is the kind of show where you get to swear, so Indeed. I love (laughs) podcasting. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm going to stop the recorder now. Okay. All right. So that was my interview with Chris Dean, campaign manager for Gabriel De La Cerda. And I let Jalen listen to this before I release it to the public. I just wanted to get his, you know, thoughts on, on what was said since he was a major subject of discussion. And I do have a couple of... Uh, I have a bit of an addendum after uh, talking with Jalen about what was said in the interview. So firstly, Jalen, in fact, did have a strategy if this election went to convention. Uh, Jalen had supporters of his uh, attend the caucus in February, and he had people prepared to vote for him at at a nominating convention on the Polk County Central Committee. So I believed Chris claimed in the interview that uh, Jalen did not have a strategy for that when, in fact, he did. And one other thing is when we were discussing uh, unions and Chris claimed that Jalen was not in discussion with unions, uh, Jalen disputes that, of course, as well. And he has a pretty, pretty good piece of evidence in his favor, which was that, and I completely missed this during the campaign, but Jalen was endorsed by a union. Uh, the Service Employees International Union of uh, the SEIU of Healthcare Workers in Minnesota and Iowa. I believe that's the local 199, although I didn't put that in my notes here. Anyway, Jalen did have a union endorsement, which is uh, a pretty big deal uh, <laughs> when you claim that he did not have any union support. And I've got the tweet here from uh, May 23rd when they endorsed him. Well, other than that, uh, I hope that listeners got something out of that interview. I think it was uh, a pretty interesting discussion, regardless of the disagreements. But uh, yeah, hopefully I can get the rest of the crew, get our schedules lined up, and we can discuss some other matters that happened during last week's primaries. There's some funny stuff, you know, the Eddie Mauro stuff. Uh, I have a pretty funny quote from the Johnson County Supervisors race, but I'll save that for Hopefully this week we'll get together and talk about this stuff. But in the meantime, uh, I would like to implore you to visit rockhardcock.us. I've added some important links to the very top of that page. You can find the most important Rock Hard Caucus material up there. Um, There's a a little page called The Store, which has links to our Redbubble page. So you can buy t-shirts and whatnot featuring the gas station logo that I made and the toxic feminine mystique logo made by our resident uh, art director, Allie High. And there's also on there collections of episodes that we have released on Patreon. If for whatever reason uh, you would like to just buy a collection of MP3s rather than go through a monthly subscription thing on Patreon. And uh, a couple of new things that I'm working on right now Uh, I have links to a couple of Google Forms where Iowa musicians can submit their music for me to use as closing music on these podcast episodes. My intention being that rather than I just put in some, like, fucking Doobie Brothers song, (laughs) 
I don't know why I came up with the Doobie Brothers, but, uh, you know, some famous music that w- was maybe referred to at some point in the episode, I can maybe make an effort to support some local artists with a little bit of free advertising instead. So if you want to do that, there's a link to that at the top of rockhardcock.us. And also one other kind of weird thing, I don't know if anyone will care about this, but uh, you may have noticed I open a lot of episodes with like a clip from a TV show or a movie where Iowa was mentioned. Like I have several uh, clips from the movie Terms of Endearment that I've used at the beginning of episodes. That's basically based on just me watching a piece of media and hearing Iowa mentioned. And then I think, oh, cool, I better clip that. I can use that later. So it's usually just shit that I've experienced. No one else's like media uh, consumption has influenced the opening clips at all. So if you hear Iowa mentioned in a TV show you're watching or whatever, uh, you can let me know about it by clicking on the second link there at the top. Let me double check what I called that. Oh yeah, it's called, it says media clips. So if you click on that, you can send me uh, an instance of the word Iowa that you heard in a movie. Uh, so yeah, uh, to start off with uh, my new effort to feature local musicians at the end of episodes, here is a little bit of music from uh, Alex Carey, who I met back when uh, I Hear I See was a, more of a regular thing. You can find this at alexcarymusic.bandcamp.com. That's Carey with a K, K-E-R-R-Y, alexcarymusic.bandcamp.com. All right. Well, thank you for listening and uh We'll see you later. Bye.